It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation's semi-annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal, too. Schedule a no-obligation in-home estimate now. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. When you were a kid, you were lied to. And I was lied to. We were all lied to. Regularly, repeatedly, and intentionally. And it was about the way the world works. You know, there's a good and a bad. This black and white. But the world's not so simple. Think of a healthcare bill. There's always exceptions to the rule. There's people that fall into the cracks that will be victims and people who will be beneficiaries and some people who will just more or less stay the same. And why is that? Well, the world is gray. Black and white does not exist. Good and bad does not exist. Not as much as we think it does. And that's one of the hardest things you have to learn in life. And one case where you undoubtedly experience the greatness of gray is none other than Philadelphia Eagles defensive tackle Jerome Brown. I am Vince Quinn, and on this episode of Upon Further Review, it's the 25th anniversary of Jerome Brown's death in 1992. And I'm going to take you down this path of a guy who's a colorful character, and he's also one of the greatest defensive players that this organization has ever seen. And perhaps he's the saddest story. But it all starts with a colorful kid. In Brooksville, Florida, he's the ninth of ten children. And Jerome Brown, throughout his whole life, describes himself as a big old kid. And it's true. There's, there's a story where Jerome Brown, as a young man, is working for a local company. He's driving a truck. And after two years of being on the job, he goes to the owner of the company and says, Hey, man. I got to take a day off. The owner says, okay, well, uh, what's up? And Jerome Brown responds, I got to get my license. He was 14 when he first gets this job. And he was big enough and looked like enough of a man that this owner had no idea. He didn't even think twice. He just said, well, yeah, this kid's huge. He's clearly at least 16. He must have his license. And the owner even went on to say, you know, he was pretty good at driving that truck. So... 
Jerome Brown has this uh, affinity for cars that you'll see throughout his life and uh, just this this big, bold personality. I mean, think of going for a job at 14 to drive a truck. Takes some audacity. I certainly wouldn't have done that. I'd be mortified. But this is the kind of person that Jerome Brown was. And this big, old kid who's driving trucks at 14 happens to be a pretty damn good high school football player. He's at Hernando High School in Brooksville, Florida, and he happens to be an All-American there. So he translates this ability, this size, into a ride to the University of Miami. He keeps it in state, not all that far from his hometown, his beloved Brooksville, Florida. And he continues to be a great player when he goes to Miami. And by the way, this is the national powerhouse year in and year out Miami, led by none other than Jimmy Johnson, the man who would just in a few short years go on to architect a dynasty. So Jerome Brown, with Jimmy Johnson, at the University of Miami, his career is a fitting shade of gray. Because as a talent, he's spectacular. His senior year, he's a finalist for the Outland Trophy, which is the best defensive lineman in football. He's an All-American. So he's a well-respected guy, but he's had his bumps and bruises. You see, his sophomore year... He's actually found with a gun in his dorm. Now, the interesting thing is, it's a registered gun, and it wasn't loaded at the time that it was discovered. But all the same campus rules dictated that he was taken off of campus. He had to live off of campus by mandate his junior and senior year. He also got into a car accident. Uh, He was driving a Corvette, and it crashed. So you can see some boldness in Jerome Brown. You can see some recklessness, but you also see in his college career some inspiring leadership. And it comes in such a quirky Jerome Brown way. Like, this is a a fascinating tale. So, in 1987, Miami is going to the Fiesta Bowl. It's the championship game this year, and it's against Penn State. Now, prior to the Fiesta Bowl taking place, there was going to be a promotional dinner in which players from the University of Miami and players from Penn State would sit down and have a meal together. The thing is, Penn State players had been saying some words about head coach Jimmy Johnson. And apparently, according to Brown, there were some racial undertones that were also said at points regarding the University of Miami team. And so Jerome Brown is not taking this lightly. And prior to the dinner, Jerome Brown organizes a walkout. So all the players attend, but they very shortly after, they all stand up and leave emphatically and intentionally out of this nationally watched promotional event. And... They ask Jerome Brown after this walkout, they say, you know, what was your thinking? Why did you do this? And Brown, he's fueled by this anger, you know, this frustration of them insulting the coach. He's such a loyal guy. And he's so bothered by it that he's able to inspire the entire team to walk out here. And his response to why did you leave is, Did the Japanese go sit down and have dinner with Pearl Harbor before they bombed them? (laughs) What? So this is one of the many moments where we get to see the 
bright and bold and eccentric personality behind Jerome Brown, this elite football player. And it goes even further with this Fiesta Bowl incident because the president of Miami, his name was Tad Foote, he went to the press and he was pretty upset about it and criticized Jerome and the team for doing it. And Jerome Brown responds to that and it's gold. He says, ask Tad Foote what Yale's record is. They wear suits and tuxedos to every game, and they end up 0-10. That sure brings a school a lot of money. Like, this guy has attitude. He has wit. He's got this leadership quality. I mean, he's the it factor, and it goes with this all-American defensive tackle talent. And so, after this Fiesta Bowl game, which they do ultimately lose in to Penn State in 1987, Brown enters the NFL draft. And at this time, the Eagles are going through a bit of change. Marion Campbell, who was the head coach, he's fired in 1985. And in 1986, just as Jerome Brown is starting his senior season at Miami, Buddy Ryan takes over for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he's a legend of sorts because... He's the defensive coordinator of the 1985 Super Bowl Shuffle Bears. He's taken off the field on their shoulders. He's built his own defensive style. The man is a living legend. But in his first year with the Eagles, he goes 5-10. and 10. And the defense, it's okay. You know, it's, it's average in terms of points allowed and yards allowed. It's nothing spectacular. And the Eagles... As they go 5-10 and 10 with this first year under Buddy Ryan, they've now been under 500 since 1981. So they're a struggling organization, and Buddy Ryan isn't an instant fix for what the Eagles need. But then you get to the 1987 draft, and this is where everything changes. Because Buddy Ryan absolutely loves Jerome Brown. And with good reason. Think of all of the stories that you've heard of Buddy Ryan, that brashness, that boldness, that screw-you attitude. The same things that you see in part in his sons today. That mentality paired with this loud, boisterous leader of men who's walking out of the Fiesta Bowl dinner. That's exactly the kind of guy that Buddy Ryan wants. He wants that anchor at the middle of this 4-6 defense that he runs, and he cannot wait to get his hands on Jerome Brown. But first, Brown has to get there. So before the draft, they're highly concerned that the Detroit Lions will go and take a defensive tackle. And actually, they do. They take a guy named Reggie Rogers, who never makes a Pro Bowl and certainly isn't a Hall of Famer. And then there's the eighth spot, which is occupied by the Buffalo Bills. And Buddy Ryan's afraid of a trade-up, and luckily that does not happen. So at number nine, with 15 minutes on the clock, Buddy Ryan has the chance to make his selection. And within 68 seconds, it's made. 68 seconds. The pick is in, and the commissioner is announcing that Jerome Brown is a Philadelphia Eagle. It was that fast. It was that much of a destiny and desire to have these two together that it took 68 seconds to hand in the pick. He couldn't have run it over fast enough. So now you have this big 
personality here with the Eagles. And he's a starter from day one, and with this draft pick notoriety and with this starter status, he instantly makes himself known to the media. And that includes guys like Glenn Mack now. He was loud. He was fun. He enjoyed calling out people within the locker room, whether it be players or reporters or anybody he wa- who walked through. Yeah, he was not afraid to be the spotlight guy. And Angelo Cataldi can tell you that he did it in a funny way. So you would be doing an interview with Reggie White or somebody like that, and he would crash your interview, you know? Which, from a media point of view, was not all that amusing, but what it created within the locker room was a dynamic where everybody was loose, including the media, because you never knew when he was going to strike again. So his impact was felt in the locker room, and it was felt by the media, and it was felt by the fans, and to an extent, it was felt by opposing teams. He had 50 tackles in his first season. He had four sacks and two interceptions. And that's on a rookie year where he had a contract holdout in camp, he hyperextended his elbow, and that was a problem for him. It happened in the opener of the season, and there were games that were canceled because you had a player strike as well in 1987. So Jerome Brown does not get a full year, but he's still pretty productive. And when you're looking at Jerome and his energy and and where he is in the locker room, and you look at the players that are also around him, because what you see in that locker room, you see Reggie White. You see Seth Joyner. You see Clyde Simmons, Andre Waters. There's a lot of talent on this team. And you got to wonder what their potential is. But at the same time, Jerome's going to be Jerome. And so during the offseason, in between 1987 and 1988, Jerome goes home. And a potentially dangerous situation takes place. You see, in Brooksville, Florida, during that summer, there was a KKK rally. And so naturally, there's going to be a lot of tension. And there's people who are yelling at each other back and forth. There's a little bit of pushing and shoving. And there are some police members there. But the person who ends up controlling the situation and diffusing the whole thing is Jerome Brown. You see, he pulls up in a car... And turns the windows down and gets the volume on his radio and turns it way up. And he blasts out the KKK members in their hate speech with funk music coming through the radio. And so while this sounds blaring, Jerome gets out of his car. He strolls through the crowd. He motions for them to calm down. He has a sign in front of him that says, go away, KKK. And when they see Jerome Brown, this big old kid at 6'2", 295 pounds and rather muscular, yeah, they leave. They pack up and go home pretty quickly. A police officer described Jerome next to one of the guys and said it looked like an ant next to him. And the other interesting thing is this was planned. You see, the police department knew that the KKK rally was going to happen because when these types of rallies do happen, you have to apply for a permit. And they knew that Jerome Brown was in town. Now, here's what's crazy about all of this. Brown is only 23 years old, but the police are seeking his help 
in diffusing, again, a very tense and potentially dangerous and deadly situation. And Brown is happy to help. He gathers members from his high school, guys he played football with, black guys, white guys, didn't matter. They all got together, and the plan was to have a silent protest to, you know, just stand around and show that they would not be bothered by all of this hate speech and eventually by sort of ignoring the Klan members, these guys would go home. But little did they know, Jerome was going to be blasting some music in the car. And so it it had a calming effect. And that's the kind of presence, again, hopping into interviews that are meant for Reggie White, that kind of attitude, that kind of presence, that calming but at the same time powerful spirit that Jerome had was something that was instrumental to the locker room and it was instrumental to the community that rallied around him while this KKK rally was going on. So you can see what kind of inspiring and gravitational figure he was and he truly was a personality, an individual. You know, he did have a gun collection, but they were registered. He also had some pet piranhas, which is an interesting choice. But as you learn more about Jerome, it just kind of makes sense. And then he had a Buick Grand National, a car that he would use for drag racing at the track. And with all of these quirky and, you could say, aggressive interests and hobbies of his, he also has this big, open heart. Um, That year... In his hometown of Brooksville, he raised money for an 11-year-old girl, and she was in a coma after a car accident, and that was in his hometown. So he has this heart, but he has this aggressiveness, and it's, again, this gray space. But ultimately, as a man, Jerome Brown is well-liked. And Ray Dinger, who's a Hall of Fame reporter and covered the team and has covered the team for many years, he thought that Jerome's role in all of this was special. You had a lot of leaders on that team. Reggie was a leader. Seth Joyner was certainly a leader. Um, but in, cer- in certain ways, I, I always kind of thought the real fire within that defense was Jerome. I mean, he was the guy on game day that I think really kind of set the tempo. And in 1988, Brown certainly did that for the team because they go 10-6. and six. It's their first winning record in seven years. They win the division even. And during that season, his second year in the NFL, Brown has five sacks. He has another interception, which is his third now in his career. He's played 16 games in the season. And the team, you know, making the playoffs, they they lose to Chicago, but everything's okay because Jerome's figuring it out. You still have Reggie in his prime. You have Seth Joyner and Clyde Simmons coming up. Andre Waters is, again, still part of this young core, this building unit under a defensive mastermind. And so you feel like there's nothing but the sky as your limit. Now, you also have, to go with all of this, Randall Cunningham. So there's just talent everywhere When you look around the locker room, and Jerome Brown is, again, one of those central figures, the fire of this defense and really the heart of the team. And so 1989, Jerome Brown continues to take everything further. It's another leap in his career. Ten and a half sacks in 1989 as a defensive tackle. It's an incredible number. And with that... 
The Eagles, they end up being second in sacks in the league, first in turnovers. They're fifth in points allowed, 12th in passing yards, and seventh in rushing yards. Jerome Brown's right at the middle of that. The Eagles are one of the better defensive units in the league, and they go 11-5. and Now, just like 88, they lose in the wild card again. And, okay, last year you'd feel pretty optimistic because it's young and they're building, and you still have some of that optimism when you lose in 89, but there is a sense of frustration here because this team is absurdly talented. And it's not just having this great defense, but you have Randall Cunningham, the most athletic quarterback the league's ever seen, and he's on the offensive side of the ball. So there is a pressure here as much as as a fan you really enjoy watching this team and you can see the power and you are at least getting to the playoffs. There's got to be some progress that's made and it does have to happen soon. And in 1990, it doesn't happen. They go from 11 and 5 to 10 and 6. Their defense as a whole takes a step back. They're now 25th in the league in passing yards allowed. They were 12th just the year before. However, they are the best rushing defense in the league. They only allow 73 yards per game on the ground. Three and a half yards a carry. And Jerome Brown is again at the center of it. He gets his first Pro Bowl nod. He's named an all-pro defensive tackle. The only other guy that gets the same honors that year in being a pro bowler and an all-pro, it's Reggie White. So it's a really good year for Jerome Brown, and while the Eagles seemingly take a step back defensively and the passing isn't as good, you look at it and, hey, they're still in the playoffs at 10-6. and So they get to play Washington in 1990. And Buddy Ryan is a man with something to lose. And unfortunately, he loses. This is three straight years of playoff failures by the Philadelphia Eagles. And Norman Brayman's just had enough at this point. And Buddy's fired. Which is totally understandable because at this point, you're looking at this team and they're not young anymore. These guys are hitting their prime. Jerome Brown's played four years in the league. Reggie White is 29 years old. Randall Cunningham's been the quarterback for a number of years now. There's no growing pains. There's no more excuses. This team needs to win. They clearly have the talent. And the fact that they keep getting knocked out in the first round of the playoffs, it's a serious problem. And so Buddy gets fired. But in fitting Buddy fashion, he has a tremendous quote. See, he's in his office, and he looks at the media... And he says, reflecting on these last three years, three playoff games, the offense couldn't piss a drop. (laughs) What a typical Buddy quote. It's excellent. But that's Buddy for you. And now he's out the door. So you have to wonder what the direction of the team is once Buddy gets fired. I mean, he felt like the right guy for the right place at the right time. And now he's gone. And for Brown, this is particularly devastating because as Buddy goes out the door, there's a bit of a smear campaign. You know, Buddy's, think of how much love there is for Buddy Ryan today in Philadelphia. Now think about how that was 26 years ago. There was a lot of love for Buddy Ryan in this town. 
So the smear campaign is not just on Buddy, not just bad news and, and rumors about Buddy, but they're also about the centerpiece player, the guy who embodied the style of Buddy on the field, and the guy who was the life and fire of this locker room. Jerome Brown is victimized as well. And there's reports about gambling and how he's running card games on the plane. And not only that, but he owes money to a lot of players. And it's a lot of money. And he hasn't paid any of it. And then there's also rumors that he's been drinking a little too much. And he's womanizing a good bit. And so Jerome Brown goes from being this guy who becomes an all-pro player, has finally really figured it out and been recognized on a national scale and led this really good defense over the past couple of years, well, now he's in the gutter. But it's not all that surprising either, is it? He's the guy that walked out of the Fiesta Bowl dinner. He's the guy that crashed a Corvette all those years ago. Yes, he's lively. Yes, he's funny. Yes, he can be lovable. But he is also immature, even dangerous. And so this is a transformative time for Brown in 1991 because he checks himself into a rehab facility and he spends some time at home in Brooksville. And then he looks at himself and he realizes that when he comes back, he's a new man and and it's going to do wonders for him. He says, it took me four years to get my priorities in place. Now I realize how important it is to get in good shape and work at things. I don't take stuff for granted the way I used to. I guess I'm maturing. Either that or, eh, maybe I'm just getting old like Reggie White here. And and that's the funny thing, too, is Jerome Brown, he's this big personality, and actually, he's quite fluent in French. He was one of those guys who take profanity to an art form. I mean, he'd work, you know, the F word into a sentence three or four different ways. Uh, and it was just colorful and would crack you up. He's also incredibly close with one of the nicest, God-fearing men on the planet in Reggie White. Every day they, they were right next to each other, sitting on stools next to each other, and you had Reggie, who was, who was an ordained minister, dressing next to Jerome, who was one of the three or four most profane people that I've ever been around. And just the contrast between the two of them was just in, in and of itself kind of funny. But the relationship that they formed was very much, to me, big brother, little brother, was, uh, was, was the way it, it sort of felt. And I think it's the way it, everybody felt. And so with all of this searching and with this relationship that he has with Reggie White and Clyde Simmons and Seth Joyner and Andre Waters and all of these other guys that are on the team, having this bond and having this newfound maturity, this new sense of, I'm going to get myself in shape. He lost 30 pounds going from the 1990 to the 1991 season. He, he was a completely new man. And so to have all of this, you see how it pays dividends in such an incredible way in the 1991 season. Because under the stewardship of Bud Carson leading that defense, the Eagles in 1991 are the best defense that was ever assembled. Ever. We're not talking just about the franchise, and that would be nice if it was, but this is the best defense the league has ever seen. And Jerome Brown, as he makes this turn in his life, and as he builds these great bonds with this big personality, he leads the best defensive unit ever.
They're first in total yards. They allow 221 a game in 1991. They're first in turnovers. They have 48 that they generate. They're first in passing yards allowed. They allow only 150 a game. This is not the late 70s. This is not the early 80s. This is after Marino, after Elway, Steve Young, Joe Montana. All of those guys have been playing in the league. They allow 150 yards a game. Their rush defense is first as well, 71 yards a game. And they're, of course, first in yards per rushing attempt with three per attempt. It's incredible. And Brown's at the center of all of this. And he plays amazing, inspired football. It's, it's the best he's ever played, and it's, it's not close. He has 88 solo stops in that season. It's the most in the league. And he has nine sacks, which for a defensive tackle, again, is exceptional. He's a pro bowler that year. He's an all-pro member that year. I mean, he's the kind of guy that if you were playing in today's game, he's clearly a $100 million man playing the defensive tackle position. Because the reputation, it doesn't come just from the sacks. It also comes from the fact that he's considered the best run stopper in the entire league. So again, three yards an attempt and only 71 yards a game on defense. And he's with Reggie White. And he's with Clyde Simmons. And he's with Mike Golick. And he is the best run stopper out of all of them. He's the best on the best unit that the league has ever seen. That's the kind of power that you have in this guy. And it's so sickening. Because this team doesn't even make the playoffs. The greatest defense that the league has ever seen doesn't make the playoffs. The playoffs. Think about that. They're first in rushing, first in passing, and, and they don't even make the playoffs with a 10-6 and six record. Because, unfortunately, and this is one of the greater what-if scenarios you could ever have in terms of football history, and especially in Philadelphia, Randall Cunningham tears his ACL the first week of the 1991 season and never plays again that year. You end up getting third string, fourth string options playing for the Eagles. It's it's truly tragic and sad. So all of this, as great and amazing and, and maybe never seen again as this team was, they don't even make the playoffs. So in a sense, it's wasted. It's so sad. Until you get to the real sad story. And that's on June 25th, 1992. When he's driving a car in his hometown of Brooksville, Florida. Jerome Brown. With his 12-year-old nephew in the car with him. Is speeding on the turnpike. And the road is wet from the rain. And the car flips over. And it flips again. And again, and he hits a utility pole, and he dies. And his nephew dies too, at 12 years old. And everything's gray again. 
Because you have this great personality, you have this inspiring individual, the one that's gotten some of the great players of Eagles history and the greatest player defensively that the league's ever seen in Reggie White, and he's inspired these guys. He's the leader of these men. And he's funny and charming, and he derails Ku Klux Klan rallies with the simple turn of a radio dial. He's incredible. He's loved in his hometown. And he dies recklessly. And it's something that he had seen before. This isn't new for Jerome Brown. He had the car accident with a Corvette when he was in college. He donated to that girl who was in a coma from a car accident from his hometown just a few years ago. He saved someone out of a car accident in Philadelphia. He got a truck driver out of the car. So he's seen all of this firsthand. He, But he would still continue this drag racing, and he just could not get it out of his system. And now, not only has he foolishly taken his own life, but he's taken the life of an innocent 12-year-old boy with him. It's an awful situation. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to be Reggie White on that day. Because just minutes before, he was about to address a crowd of thousands of people. He was given the news. And you can hear the absolute shattering of his spirit as he explains this news to the Philadelphia crowd at the sermon. Today, I lost a great friend. Philadelphia lost a great player. Jerome Brown died today. You know, this man was a very special man to me. His family, very special people. Out of all the stuff that you heard about Jerome Brown, and the things said about him, and neither the negative stuff. This man was one of the greatest people I ever met and knew in my life. And you can find evidence of that pain all over the place. Mike Golick has a press conference where he's slumped over and can hardly speak. And he talks about just how great of a person Jerome Brown was. He says, forget the football. Jerome Brown was a great man. So the, the team is just, they've lost their fire. And Angelo Cataldi saw firsthand what this did to the fans. He did a bus tour with a bunch of crazy fans up to Boston and Cooperstown and Baltimore. And I was on a, one of these trips to the Midwest with a, about 75, 70 fans of Philadelphia sports. We're in a bus. We're traveling, I believe, from Milwaukee back to Chicago, and somebody says in the bus, Jerome Brown has died. And everybody thought it was a joke at first. What kind of joke is that? And then they were able to confirm it. And I got to witness firsthand the impact that had on people that love Philadelphia sports. People were crying, outwardly crying. They were, you gotta understand, they were in this jubilant mood. Some of them had been drinking, having a party. And then they find out their favorite player just passed away in a tragic accident. To this day, it's one of the most chilling moments I ever experienced. Because you could see, I, I could see the tangible sense of loss that all these people had at that same time. And it, the rest of the trip was 
people who were incredulous that this had happened. They couldn't stop talking about it. It was the only thing that was discussed for the rest of the trip. So fans were shattered, and the team was distraught, and Jerome Brown was dead. But his spirit lived on. Ironically, it happened at his funeral. When Buddy Ryan was the head coach of the Eagles, he would demand the team travel with a dress shirt and a tie. Now, Jerome Brown was not so interested in wearing a shirt and a tie. Remember that quote he had about Yale football? Ask Tad Foote what Yale's record is. They wear suits and tuxedos to every game, and they could end up 0-10. Jerome Brown was 10-6, and and he wasn't wearing a damn tie. And so he used to carry it instead in his pocket, and his dress shirt would be unbuttoned as he traveled. So with the letter of the law, he did have the shirt and he did have the tie, but it's Jerome being Jerome. And so at the funeral, which all of the players on the team attended, as his casket was there and about to be descended into the ground, each player approached the casket, not with a rose, but with a tie. And they laid them out before they dropped him eternally into the ground. And after that, everything changed. I realize Reggie White was the star of the team, but he was the soul of the team, Jerome, because he he embodied what made them so crazy, so I know, unbridled in the way they played the game. It took it away. They were never the same, uh, and you knew it. It wasn't like you would go, well, somebody will fill the breach. No, you knew the minute that Jerome had this tragedy that that team would never be the same, and it never was. But in 1992, the Eagles certainly tried. They did their best to carry on that spirit, that fire that Jerome Brown was for them. And it it started in a peculiar way when they were celebrating his life during the first game of the 1992 season. They brought Jerome's parents there. uh, And uh, Norman Brayman, who owned the team at the time, came out with Reggie White, Seth Joyner, and they were going to give them the framed jersey. They had his jersey in a big frame, which was a very nice gesture. And when they did it, um, what happened was they invited Reggie up to talk. And Reggie, being the minister, got into the spirit of the thing, and boy, it was great. And uh, 65,000 fans in there were just, everybody was was crying and laughing and, and doing enjoying the moment, living in the moment. And then Reggie did something. He went off script. And in, as he wrapped up his speech and he held up the number 99 jersey, he said, and no player in the future of the Philadelphia Eagles will ever wear this jersey number again. And it wasn't supposed to be retired. That was not in the script. That was what, not what Norman Brayman had planned. Reggie did it upon himself. Nobody at that point was going to argue it. And that's how his number got to be retired. But it didn't stop there. You see, the Eagles in 1992 also wore patches on their uniforms, a JB in honor of Jerome Brown. And to go beyond that, there was his locker. His clothes were still hanging there. His hat was still on the shelf. His jersey, his shoes, they kept his locker in place. And, in fact, they actually took his stuff and brought it with them to New Orleans for the playoff game and set up his locker as if he were still there. So for the entirety of the 1992 season, Reggie White 
dressed next to the empty locker of his close friend and now deceased Jerome Brown. And the whole team honored him this way. So by the time it gets to the playoffs, it's a complete surprise. They have no idea that that's going to happen. And the energy that came with it did something spectacular. It fueled an Eagles playoff victory in 1992. They hadn't seen one. The the last Eagles playoff win was their Super Bowl run when they won the NFC Championship game at the end of the 1980 season. So Jerome Brown, who had died in June, makes his presence felt on the football field nearly six months after his death. And that's the power that he had on this team. Now, while that's a nice story, you can't wrap this up in a nice, neat little bow. This is too complicated because Jerome Brown was a complicated man. He was super charming and outgoing and fun. He was also unruly and aggressive at times. And so you look back on this complete picture and you want to say, is it good or bad? Is it black or white? Well, it's gray. I'm Vince Quinn. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Upon Further Review. I'd like to thank the guests that we had on the show Angelo Cataldi, Glenn Macnow, and Ray Dinger. Uh, I get to work with all of them at 94WIP, and it is an absolute pleasure. So thanks to all of them. Uh, make sure you listen to their shows on WIP. Follow them on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at It's Vince Quinn. I am Vince Quinn. And what we've done for those of you on Patreon this week is my interview with Angelo, as well as my interview that I did with Glenn and Ray together. Those are available to listen to in their entirety. So feel free to check those out as well. I hope you enjoyed them, and I'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 